Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for November 2018. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month or two. So let's get started with something a little different in the New England Journal of Medicine. A candida auris outbreak and its control in an intensive care setting. So Candida auris is an emerging multi-drug resistant pathogen that has recently been associated with outbreaks worldwide, often in intensive care units. This New England Journal article describes an outbreak in the neuro ICU in Oxford and the identification and intervention program. So it was first identified in 2009 with subsequent re-identification over 15,000 invasive candida isolates from interventional invasive samples collected from 2004 onwards. And they identified four isolates and supported the emergence of candida auris occurring. So the introduction of this article discusses the difficulty or the difficult to explain scenario of a relatively old species causing simultaneous newly recognized disease among patients worldwide. The theories for this include changes in the natural environment, changing antifungal prophylaxis and treatment, and changing approaches to diagnosis and to the identification of species or changes in healthcare environments. After an outbreak in 72 patients in a cardiothoracic ICU near London in 2015, the Oxford NHS Trust performed a look-back exercise and identified nine patients colonised or infected with candida auris, eight of whom had been in the neuro ICU. As a result, routine screening for this isolate began in October 2016. This included three times a week sampling from the ICU and neighbouring neuro ward and whole genome sequencing. So what did they find? In terms of cases, these were identified as not having candida or as prior to ICU admission. So 70 patients were identified as colonised or infected with the candida auris between February 15 and August 17 with a median ICU length of stay of eight days prior to positive culture. Invasive infection occurred in seven. One patient died, although this occurred over 200 days after the last isolate, so there were no deaths attributable to candida auris. In terms of screening, 900 patients had 2,780 patient days and 62 patients returned a positive swab. Acquisition rate was 2.9 cases per 100 neuro ICU days. In terms of controls, these were patients who had never been colonised or infected with C. auris and were admitted to the neuro ICU before they had one or more negative screens. After multivariate analysis, uh, the risk of infection initially increased with ICU length of stay before declining with longer stays. The risk of colonisation was greatest in association with high normal to moderately elevated neutrophil counts, the risk of colonization or infection was associated with any skin surface auxiliary temperature monitoring with the use of reusable probes. There was an odds ratio of 6.8 for that. 
And these temperature probes were used in 57 or 86% of the cases. Systemic fluconazole treatment associated with was associated with an increased risk, although that was only in three cases um, that antifungal agents were given prior to colonization or infection. Environmental screening and infection control uh, response. Um, Candidorus was rarely detected in the general environment or the air, but was detected on reusable patient monitoring equipment like auxiliary temperature probes and pulse oximeters. In terms of antifungal susceptibility testing, um, there was 100% resistance to fluconazole, 98% to vori, 90% resistant to posiconazole, uh, and 18% were amphotericin resistant. None were mycofungin or flucytosine resistant. There was no association between case versus control and 30-day mortality. Um, isolation occurred initially in auxiliary sites, uh, most frequently, and the median duration of carriage amongst patients who remained alive was 61 days. So in summary, this paper describes the outbreak of Candida auris in a neuroscience ICU. The source appears to be attributed to persistence on reusable equipment, particularly skin surface probes. Uh, this fungus is resistant to fluconazole, voriconazole and posiconazole, with 18% resistant to amphotericin. Although persistent, invasive infections were uncommon and there were no deaths attributed to it. So there you go, a new fungus to deal with. Let's stay with the New England Journal, but go to something a bit more mainstream. So that's the timing of renal replacement therapy in patients with acute kidney injury and sepsis. So this is the ideal ICU trial and the CRICS trigger set network group. So the ideal ICU trial examines the effect of timing of renal replacement therapy for patients with severe sepsis and severe acute kidney injury. The initiation of renal replacement therapy is accepted if there are life-threatening complications of acute kidney injury, e.g. hyperkalemia, acidosis, fluid overload. However, the timing in the absence of these is less clear. In 2016, we had two RCTs that shed light on this. Um, the first, uh, Zabochis in JAMA, single centre 231 patients for adult patients who needed to have either both uh, or all of stage 2 AKI, um, an N-gale of greater than 150 nanograms per mil and severe sepsis or vasopressors or catecholamines or fluid load overload or a SOFA score greater than 2. That was the inclusion criteria. Um, and they got early CRRT within 8 hours versus delayed, which was initiated within... 12 hours of stage 3 AKI. In practice, the timing of uh, CRRT post-enrollment was 6 hours versus 25 hours in this study. Um, in the early group, 100% got it, and in the delayed group, 91% ended up receiving renal replacement therapy. The primary outcome was mortality at 90 days, which was 39% in early versus 54.7% delayed, um, and that was significant. The early group recovered renal function more quickly, 9 versus 25 days, had shorter hospital of stay, 
the 51 versus 82 days, but no difference in their need for renal replacement therapy after day 90. That was a positive study for early renal replacement therapy. Uh, the second was the Akiki trial uh, in the New England Journal in 2016, and this prospective multicenter RCT enrolled 620 ventilated catecholamine requiring patients with severe AKI and no life-threatening renal failure indication to immediate versus delayed renal replacement therapy. The early group uh, was commenced in a median of 4.3 hours after stage 3 AKI um, and the delay group was 57 hours uh, and half of the delay group didn't actually need renal replacement therapy and a lot of it was intermittent hemodialysis, not continuous. Uh, the primary outcome was 60-day survival and it was no different, about 49% in both. CLABSI was higher in the early group, diuresis occurred earlier in the delayed group and the number of days free of renal replacement therapy was increased in the delayed group. And there was no difference in ventilator-free days, ICU and hospital length of stay or renal replacement therapy dependence. So two very different outcomes from the two studies in 2016 with similar entry criteria and mortality rates, different primary endpoints at 60 versus 90 days. The time to delayed renal replacement therapy was different. It was 25 versus 57 hours in the two studies. The modes were different, continuous versus predominantly intermittent. And the proportion that didn't receive renal replacement therapy in the delayed group were different, 9 versus 50%. So did the first study just show a treatment benefit because they used continuous renal replacement therapy um, because they gave delayed treatment, that is uh, 30 hours earlier, or because over 90% of patients, uh, of the delayed patients, received the therapy? Or is it simply it was just a single centre study and... Uh, it's not reproducible. So bring on the ideal ICU trial. This prospective multi-center randomized controlled trial of patients with early stage septic shock, severe AKI, um, without life-threatening complications related to their AKI were randomized to renal replacement therapy either within 12 hours, that's early, versus delayed, um, which was 48 hours if renal recovery had not already occurred. The trial was stopped early for futility after the second planned interim analysis. A total of 488 patients underwent randomization. There was no significant between group differences in the characteristics at baseline. The primary outcome was death at 90 days, and uh, that was 58% in the early group and 54% in the delayed group. In the delayed strategy group, 40% or 38% did not receive renal replacement therapy. 30% was due to recovery. 8% died, 1% other reason. And the median time to renal replacement therapy was 7.6 hours in the early group and 52 hours in the delayed group. In terms of secondary outcomes, delayed strategy was associated with an increase in renal replacement therapy free days and there was no difference in fluid balance. So overall, in a homogenous population of patients with severe AKI in the early phase of septic shock, the initiation of early renal replacement therapy 
was not associated with improved 90-day mortality or secondary outcomes compared to delayed renal replacement therapy. Delayed renal replacement therapy did result in 38% of patients not requiring renal replacement therapy. The authors provide a good last word. Risk of death is not increased if renal replacement therapy is postponed for at least 48 hours as long as care is taken to identify patients in whom criteria for emergency renal replacement therapy are likely to be met. Okay, let's stay with the big hitting articles in New England Journal. So now we've got the target study, one which many of us in Australia and New Zealand have been waiting for. So this is energy-dense versus routine enteral nutrition in the critically ill. Should we continue to aim for caloric targets in critically ill patients based on the recommendation that energy intake match energy expenditure in order to prevent cumulative energy deficits, particularly with the knowledge that we don't achieve this, that is, due to feed intolerance, fasting, procedures, etc., we deliver less than 60% of this target. The target trial sets out to answer this. This multi-center, double-blind, RCT, randomized 4,000 adult patients receiving mechanical ventilation in 46 Australian and New Zealand ICUs. So they were randomized to energy-dense versus routine enteral nutrition. So energy dense was 1.5 kilocals per mil and routine was 1 kilocal per mil. And they all got a dose of 1 mil per kilo ideal body weight per hour. And that was commenced with, within 12 hours of initiation of nutritional support and continued for up to 28 days while the patient was in ICU. The difference in calories in the enteral feeds was made up by an increase in fat and carbohydrate with similar protein density. So they got the same volume of feed. It was just the makeup of the feed changed in the energy dense with more fat and carbohydrate. At baseline, the groups were well matched. Uh, about 70% were medical. There was clear treatment separation. The volume of nutrition uh, enterally provided was similar. Uh, but the energy dense received more calories than the routine. So it was 1,863 versus 1,260 calories, which is what you'd expect, about 50% more, because that's what was in the feed. Overall calorie delivery from trial and non-trial sources was 30 kilocals per kilo per day in the energy-rich group versus 22 kilocals per kilo per day in the routine group with similar protein delivery of 1 gram per kilo per day. Estimates of daily calorie requirements were available for 65% of the patients in the trial, and enteral nutrition was uh, delivered 103% of the estimate requirements in the energy-dense group versus 70% in the one kilocal group. The primary outcome was day 90 mortality, and this was not different. 26.8% in the energy dense group versus 25.7% in the routine group. Uh, the relative risk was 1.05, p-value 0.4. And these were similar, or this result was similar, in seven predefined subgroups. Uh, 
Higher calorie delivery did not affect survival time, receipt of organ support, number of days alive and out of the ICU and hospital or free of organ support, or the incidence of infective complications or adverse events. The routine feed or the standard feed was associated with a smaller, median, largest GRV, 180 versus 250 mils, less regurgitation and vomiting, 16 versus 19%, less pro-motility use, um, 39 versus 47%, and less insulin use, 0 versus 3 units per day. And finally, lower median daily blood glucose levels. So overall, this large RCT tells us that in patients undergoing mechanical ventilation, administering one mil per kilo per hour of energy-dense calories did not result in improved outcomes compared to routine enteral nutrition. In practical terms, delivery of 70% of estimate energy requirements, or 22 kilocals per kilo per day, by prescribing routine enteral nutrition as one mil per kilo per hour results in the same outcome as delivery of 100% of the estimate of energy requirements using energy-dense nutrition. In addition, routine nutrition is perhaps simpler with lower gastric residual volumes, prokinetic and insulin use, although there is no proven clinical benefit. So what we don't know is if delivering 70% of the energy target with energy-dense nutrition at a lower rate makes any difference. Um, and we don't know still if altering the protein would have made a difference. So this is a great study, an important addition to the literature, and you should read it. The next big-hitting study published in the New England Journal was the SUP-ICU trial groups pantoprazole in patients at risk for gastrointestinal bleeding in the ICU. So the administration of proton pump inhibitors or H2 antagonists to prevent stress ulcers in mechanically ventilated patients has been a source of ongoing debate in critical care. PPIs are the most commonly used subagents, although there are concerns about efficacy and side effects, including C. difficile, pneumonia, and we're told myocardial events. The stress ulcer prophylaxis in the intensive care unit, SUP-ICU trial, evaluated the effects of and adverse events associated with the prophylactic use of pantoprazole in adult ICU patients at risk for gastrointestinal bleeding. This European multi-center parallel group blinded trial randomly assigned 3,300 adults admitted to ICU for an acute condition, unplanned admission, and who are at risk for gastrointestinal bleeding, which is sort of being ventilated or needing vasopressors and sick, to receive 40 milligrams of IV pantoprazole or placebo daily during the ICU stay. Exclusion criteria included patients already receiving PPIs, those who'd had a GI hemorrhage during the index hospital admission, uh, or had an endoscopically identified ulcer during the hospital admission. Um, patients with liver disease or receiving glucocorticoids were included. Baseline was similar. Median ICU length of stay was six days. 
The primary outcome was death by 90 days after randomization, and that occurred in 31% of the pantoprazole group and 30% in the placebo group. There was no heterogeneity in the effect of pantoprazole versus placebo on 90-day mortality in the following groups, that is history of liver disease, history of or ongoing coagulopathy, shock or mechanical ventilation, or between patients with different types of ICU admission. There was heterogeneity in the estimate of intervention effect among patients with higher as compared with lower baseline severity of disease disease using SAPS 2 scores of 53 as the cutoff, suggesting an increased mortality in higher severity patients receiving pantoprazole. At least one clinically important event, uh, and that was a composite of clinically important GI, bleeding, pneumonia, C. diff infection, or myocardial ischemia, occurred in 22% of the pantoprazole compared to 22.6% of the placebo group. Importantly, GIT bleeding occurred in 2.5% of pantoprazole versus 4.2% in the placebo group, um, and no p-value was supplied because of the lack of adjustment for multiple comparisons. There was no difference in infections or serious adverse reactions. Percentage of days alive without life support within 90 days. So the routine administration of pantoprazole to adult ICU patients at risk for gastrointestinal bleeding, which ended up being all the ventilated catecholamine-requiring patients, was not associated with a difference in mortality at day 90 or a composite clinically important event when compared to placebo. There was a possible difference in clinically important gastrointestinal bleeding although the significance of that wasn't able to be analysed and it didn't appear to affect patient outcomes. So therefore, we can consider two conclusions. The first is that pantoprazole, PPI, stress ulcer prophylaxis offers no benefit compared to placebo and we should not apply it to the patients included in this study. The second is that PPI, stress ulcer prophylaxis, may decrease GI bleeding from about 42 to 25 per 1,000 ICU patients without improving recovery and at the expense of, in this study, about 6,000 doses of pantoprazole in the same population. So this is going to be an interesting one for ICUs to debate and come up with whether they continue to use routine pantoprazole, stress ulcer prophylaxis, or only apply it to cases who are currently receiving PPIs or have proven gastrointestinal bleeding or endoscopically proven ulcer disease. It's going to be an interesting debate. Okay, another trial in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's been a big couple of months. This is haloperidol and zeprazidone for treatment of delirium in critical illness. This is the Mind USA investigators. So, delirium affects over half our ventilated patients and is associated with longer length of stay, increased mortality, care issues such as device removal, and long-term cognition. As our focus on this problem intensifies, so does our desire to understand the best pharmaceutical 
options to reduce its impact. There is a lot to choose from. Older agents such as haloperidol and benzodiazepine and newer agents such as quetiapine, olanzapine, ziprazidone and dexmedetomidine. This prospective double-blind trial performed in 16 US centres randomised 566 patients with acute respiratory failure or shock and hypoactive or hyperactive delirium 1 to 1 to 1 to receive IV boluses of haloperidol, a maximum of 20 milligrams a day, versus ziprazidone, a maximum dose of 40 milligrams a day, versus placebo. The volume and dose of trial drug or placebo was halved or doubled at 12-hour intervals in the basins or, or of the presence or absence of delirium using CAM scores. So delirium in this study, 90% was hypoactive and 10% hyperactive. The median trial drug exposure was four days. The median daily dose of haloperidol was 11 milligrams, zeprazidone 20, and 21% received open-label antipsychotics during the trial, and that was similar between groups. The primary endpoint was number of days alive without delirium or coma during the 14-day intervention period, this occurred in 8.5 days in the placebo group, 7.9 in the haloperidol group, and 8.7 in the ziprazidone group. With, uh, that wasn't significant. The, the use of haloperidol or ziprazidone as compared with placebo had no significant effect on the primary endpoint. Uh, odds ratio of 0.88, 95% interval 0.64 to 1.21 and 1.04, 95% confidence intervals, 0.73 to 1.48 respectively. No interaction was observed in subgroups uh, between treatment allocation and outcome, including hyperactive delirium. There was no difference in secondary endpoints, including 30-day and 90-day survival, time to freedom from mechanical ventilation, time to ICU and hospital discharge, or extra pyramidal symptoms and excessive sedation. So overall, the use of haloperidol or ziprazidone as compared with placebo in patients with acute respiratory failure or shock did not alter the course of delirium. Now this was predominantly hypoactive delirium, so it's a hypoactive delirium study which means there may be effects in the hyperactive delirium group that weren't analysed adequately in this study. Can we really treat delirium with placebo and expect only 20% of delirious patients will receive open-label antipsychotics or sedatives? Or is this again a measure of the nature of the study being a hypoactive delirium study? And finally, it would be interesting to know the long-term psychological and cognitive comparisons between the groups. Still, it's interesting. Okay, let's move to JAMA for the POLAR study. This is the effect of early sustained prophylactic hypothermia on neurological outcomes among patients with severe traumatic brain injury from the ANZICS clinical trials group. So does early prophylactic hypothermia improve long-term neurological outcome in patients with severe TBI? 
The Eurotherm trial reported late rescue hypothermia for patients with elevated ICP was associated with harm. A 2007 meta-analysis suggested that decreased mortality and long-term neurological benefit were associated with prophylactic hypothermia after severe TBI and provided a low-grade recommendation for clinical use. The only RCT with 392 patients reported no benefit. So this multinational randomised trial of 511 adult patients with severe TBI, GCS less than 9, which excluded uh, patients with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or a heart rate greater than 120 or suspected uncontrolled bleeding or a GCS of 3, randomised patients to early prophylactic hypothermia or normothermia. So early prophylactic hypothermia was 33 to 35 degrees Celsius, sustained for at least 72 hours, followed by slow rewarming, which occurred if there was an absence of elevated ICP greater than 20 millimetres of mercury. This was initiated in both the out-of-hospital and ED settings by patient exposure, a bolus of up to 2 litres of IV ice-cold saline, and surface cooling wraps once the patient was in the ED. This was then maintained for three to seven days using the GAMAR Medi-Therm. Normothermia was 37 degrees, plus or minus 0.5 degrees. In terms of characteristics and treatments, uh, baseline char- characteristics were similar. They were about 35 years of age. Core temp was significantly lower in the hypothermia group. Um, In the hypothermia group, the median time to 35 degrees Celsius was two and a half hours in 90% who reached it, and the time to 33 was 10 hours in the 72% who reached it. The median duration of hypothermia was 72 hours, and the duration of rewarming was 23 hours. In terms of outcomes, the primary outcome was favourable neurological outcomes at six months and that occurred in 48.8% in the hypothermia versus 49.1% in the normothermia which is no different. There was no difference in GOSE at six months, there was no difference in six-month mortality, there was no difference in time to death and no difference in adverse events. The only difference uh, was in as in the as-treated analysis, and that was increased pneumonia in the hypothermia group, 71 versus 57%. So in summary, the use of early prophylactic hypothermia sustained for at least 72 hours was not associated with improved outcomes in patients with severe TBI compared to the use of normothermia. Let's stay with JAMA, and we've got decontamination strategies and bloodstream infections with antibiotic-resistant microorganisms in ventilated patients. So the value of chlorhexidine 2% mouthwash, selective oropharyngeal decontamination, SOD, or selective digestive tract decontamination, SDD, remain unclear. Do they improve outcomes of critically ill patients? This non-blinded, cluster-randomised crossover trial conducted in 13 ICUs in Europe and the UK, set out to quantify the association between these decontamination strategies and ICU-acquired bloodstream infections 
with multi-drug resistant gram-negative bacteria, patient mortality, and unit-wide prevalence of antibiotic resistance. Study design, so only ICUs with ESBL prevalence of at least 5% amongst Enterobacter uh, causing bloodstream infections were eligible. ICUs with endemic carbapenem-resistant Enterobacter multi-drug resistant Pseudomonas or Acinetobacter or VRE and any, any of them over 10% were excluded. All ICUs had baseline period of six months, which included uh, the 2% chlorhex body wash and hand hygiene programs and chlorhexidine mouthwash if that was already standard care. After the baseline, the three interventions, which was the chlorhex mouthwash, SOD and SDD were randomly implemented with six-month study periods and one-month washout period after. The details of the intervention were, so the chlorhex mouthwash was 2%, which was actually replaced by an oral gel 1% during the study due to oral mucosal adverse effects. SOD was an oropharyngeal paste of 0.5 grams nystatin. SDD was the oropharyngeal paste, enterocolistin, topramycin, nystatin, and IV antibiotics weren't given. All three interventions were delivered four times a day, and rectal and respiratory surveillance were obtained twice weekly. The intervention ended at extubation, uh, not ICU discharge. There were 8,700 patients enrolled, of which about 65% were medical, the baseline bloodstream infection with the resistant gram-negative bacteria occurred in 2% of patients, which is less than the sort of 5% to get into the study. The compliance with protocols was over 90%. The primary outcome, ICU acquired uh, multi-drug resistant GMB bloodstream infections did not differ between the three strategies compared, uh, so that was uh, adjusted hazards ratio of 1.13 for chlorhex mouthwash, 0.89 for SOD and 0.7 for SDD, compared with the baseline periods of chlorhexidine body wash and hand hygiene improvement programs. The ICU acquired bloodstream infections did not differ, mortality did not differ, the unit-wide antibiotic use did not differ, Carriage, both uh, uh, rectally of multi-drug-resistant GNBs, did not differ. Uh, Post-hoc analysis revealed ICU-acquired bloodstream infections with any organism did not differ. So in summary, among ventilated patients in ICU with moderate to high prevalence of antibiotic resistance, use of chlorhexidine 1% mouthwash, SOD or SDD, was not associated with a significant difference in bloodstream infections compared with standard care, which was chlorhex body wash and hand hygiene programs. So let's finish up with an article in JAMA by the Cistress Rear Study Group, and this is a bit different and a good way to finish. The effects of a multimodal program, including simulation on job strain among nurses working in intensive care units. ICU is a physically, cognitively, technically and emotionally complex environment. ICU nurses are expected to provide humane care in this environment despite increasing stressors. 
Is it possible to reduce stress and burnout in ICU nurses? This open-label, multi-centre study performed in eight French adult ICUs over a one-year period in 2016-2017 examined whether a multimodal program that included simulation scenarios, education, role-play and debrief was able to reduce job stress amongst ICU nurses. A total of 198 ICU nurses who were actively working in adult ICU and had at least six months' experience in the current ICU, including day and night staff, were enrolled. The nurses were randomised to intervention or control groups. The intervention groups underwent a five-day course that was divided into a three-day, three days in week one and two days in week two. The intervention took place during paid working hours and nurses were not reimbursed for participating in the trial. The five-day intervention cost the employer approximately €2,000 per nurse. It, the intervention aimed to reduce job strain prevalence by improving the ability to cope with stressful situations, e.g. cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, end-of-life issues, and cope with some stresses related to work organisation, like task interruption, ambiguity of roles, workload distribution, or working conditions like lack of communication and feelings of non-recognition or lack of autonomy. Now, we recognise all of these in our practices. The training course, including theory, uh, participation in simulation scenarios, which was then followed by debriefing sessions that discussed soft skills and practices. Outcomes. Data collection occurred at baseline 6 and 12 months after intervention. The trial was stopped at interim analysis with 198 enrolled. All 101 nurses in the intervention group participated in the five-day program. The prevalence of job strained, which was assessed by a questionnaire that included psychological demand and decision latitude evaluation, was significantly reduced at six months. So it was 13% in the intervention group versus 67% in the control group. These differences in job strain persisted at 12 months. Absenteeism was 1% in the intervention group compared to 8% in the control group at six months. So in summary, a five-day multimodal program for ICU nurses that included simulation education, role play and debrief was associated with reduced job strain at 6 and 12 months compared to nurses who did not receive this program. This has important implications as the effect of stress on burnout, mental health, absenteeism, patient care and career longevity are concerning in critical care areas. Of course there are many questions. Can this be replicated outside of France? Does the result persist beyond 12 months? Are refresher courses needed? And what are the requirements for the intervention education team to be effective? Great study. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for the month. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, come to the site and have a look around. Thank you. <music>